Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes references to exhumation and death from illness. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Matilda's bleary eyes stared at the computer screen without reading a thing. She'd hit that point in the night where the research notes she'd spent hours typing up ceased to be words, and instead looked like amorphous black-and-white blobs. She rubbed her eyes, accidentally smudging her new glasses. In the weeks it took them to fit the frames with her lens prescription, the oversized look had already gone out of style. She was always a step behind the trend. A timer on her desk blared, making her jump. She shut it off. If she didn't set a reminder, she might accidentally stay the night. Work was easy to disappear into when you were single and your glasses were out of fashion. Matilda's sensible flat slapped cold tile as she walked through a massive hall, the commons at the Smithsonian Castle. During the day, this area was bustling with visitors, but at night, it was empty and cold. Not even a night guard was around. No matter how high its intricate ceilings were, when night darkened the halls, Matilda felt like she was in a dungeon, especially on summer Fridays, when her colleagues left early to attend to their social lives. Matilda passed the hall's fixed exhibit of taxidermied birds near the exit. Their cold black eyes gave her a chill. She quickened her pace. Matilda slowed. Did she hear something? She turned back to the birds. Their dead expressions stared back at her. She shook her head. She must be more tired than she thought. But as she turned to leave, one bird caught her attention. It was parrot-sized, a deep black, with yellow tips on its wings, and perched on the railing below the glass case. Its eyes glinted, piercing into Matilda's with a lifelike intensity. Her fingers twitched at her side, suddenly filled with the urge to touch it. Its soft feathers looked like black velvet. She stepped toward it to slowly reach out a hand. But then, its beak flew open and let out a piercing scream. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, Join me on a supernatural journey to Washington, D.C. for a tour of the Smithsonian Institution Building, also known as the Castle, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we'll take a spectral tour of the Smithsonian. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
with a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Smithsonian Institution building is an impressive structure. It's a sprawling Norman-style building with narrow windows, a red brick facade, and looming turrets, all features which gave it the nickname, the castle. Completed in 1855, the castle first contained all of the Smithsonian's operations. Particularly, it was home to the Smithsonian's research offices, including many laboratories, storage for specimens, and living quarters for visiting scientists. But as its reputation and collections grew, it became a museum. The building still houses the institution's administrative offices and the Smithsonian Information Center. Most of its collection was moved in 1881, when the Arts and Industries building was constructed adjacent to the castle. Today, the Smithsonian Institution has grown to become the world's largest museum, education, and research complex, comprising 19 museums and a zoo. Overall, it contains millions of artifacts from multiple fields and is a popular destination for tourists. Its contents and collections are so varied in scope and discipline that it's hard to pinpoint the institution's singular directive. Its purpose statement is referential but broad, stating that their existence is based on, quote, the increase and diffusion of knowledge. But the historical and scientific breadth of the Smithsonian attracts a plethora of renowned researchers. The curators and researchers who work there are immensely dedicated to their pursuits. There's hardly anything that seems to stop them on their path to the next great discovery. Not even death. Fielding Meek coughed into his handkerchief as he jotted down notes. They were detailed measurements alongside a sketch of a shell-like fossil. The cough made his already messy handwriting jerk in exaggerated spikes. Beside him glowed a lantern sitting on a wood table, illuminating the real-life specimen from his pages. It was a light-colored rock containing the outline of a large shell, a perfectly preserved ancient moment. Fielding appraised it lovingly. He slapped a hanky to his mouth to stifle his cough, but when he pulled it back, he deflated. Blood. His cough had never been this bad before, or the blood this vivid. Maybe he'd stayed up too late, or maybe he had what he'd always dreaded. Consumption. It was impossible. The illness didn't strike this quickly. Although if he was being honest, he'd had a persistent cough since the castle's fire a few years ago. He winced at the memory. The fire had been sudden, consuming his former cozy room beneath the gallery stairwell in the southeast corner of the lecture room. He'd been relocated to a smaller upstairs room ever since, and there this dreaded cough had begun and continued to worsen. Fielding didn't treat it. After all, the cough got in the way of all the work he had to do. So instead of rushing to a doctor, he'd ignored it. And so long as he could work, he would continue to ignore it. Fielding glanced at his cat, who was curled up next to the fossil. 
He should have been concerned that his old cat might knock the precious artifact over. But he'd had his cat for a long time now. He trusted her. He could talk out his ideas with her. Fielding touched the shell's grooves and mused aloud. It was likely a clam from the Permian period. A colorful shimmer between its indentations caught his eye. He looked closer, noticing a red and gold color pattern. Fielding tensed, his mouth suddenly dry. Was that the original color of the clam? He'd never seen one like it. It could mean... No, he'd always gotten ahead of himself. He'd have to talk to Barrett first, and then spend another few days with it before he could theorize its secrets. Fielding and his cat stopped in front of Baird's office. The crack under the door glowed from the candlelight, so Fielding shouldered it open without knocking. The museum curator, Spencer Fullerton Baird, peered at Fielding through his dark brown eyes. He had a black beard and was wearing a three-piece suit. His bowler hat sat by his hand as he scribbled on parchment with a fountain pen. Fielding opened his mouth to launch into a diatribe about the peculiar colors he'd found, but he didn't get the chance. Baird waved his hands in exasperation, murmuring something. Fielding frowned, asking him to say it again. Louder this time, Baird yelled that he didn't have time for Fielding's ramblings. Fielding flushed, ducking out of the room. The curator had talked to him about his chattiness before, but he was well regarded in the paleontological community. He'd been published. Still, no one wanted to talk about his mollusks, and that made him sad. Fielding laboriously climbed the winding staircase to his rooms, coughing all the way up. He missed his other quarters under the grand staircase, a preferable location right in the middle of it all. But his new room upstairs was isolating. He'd moved willingly enough after the fire, for he'd rather be in the castle than outside of it. It had been a few years, and his old room still hadn't been restored. He eyed the darkness in front of him. It was suffocating up here, more suffocating than the smoke had been. Fielding reached his room at the top of the tower and set the lantern down beside his dusty bed. Then, finally, he sat. He was exhausted, but wanted to write up some more notes about the mollusk. He took out his notepad, but a coughing fit stopped him. His lungs shuddered until the attack slowly abated. His cat hissed from his spot at Fielding's feet, looking toward the doorway. A tall figure stood there, shrouded in darkness. Fielding blinked. He was sure it was just a hallucination. He was sicker than he thought. But then, the figure stepped forward, his face catching the moonlight. The man's skin was petrified stone, like a fossil, and his mouth hung open in a silent, frozen scream. This wasn't a hallucination. It was a nightmare. Fielding struggled to sit up from his bed, the movement sending him into another coughing fit. Fielding's chest filled with fluid. A sweaty sheen covered his forehead, and his vision blurred. He opened his mouth to call for help, but he could only gasp for air. Every vein in his head was poised to explode. His face grew hot, and his fingers turned numb. 
his worried cat licked his face. He rolled onto his back and stared upwards at the ceiling. The man's fossilized face appeared overhead. He disappeared briefly, then appeared again. The fossil man became a blur as he came and went. Fielding continued to cough, only able to watch. His mind whirled. What was happening? Who was this man? What did he want? And then the man plunged a hand into Fielding's chest. Fielding's lungs popped. Fluid poured down his throat, tasting like blood and bile. A thick iron scent cut through the air. Fielding gasped for oxygen, but there was none to be had. Only that thick, viscous mix of fluid that had filled his throat. Then the face disappeared. Fielding sat up, finally taking a deep breath. His chest was suddenly clear, his body limber. He nearly laughed. It had been a horrible dream. His hand flew to pet his cat, but the cat wasn't there. He looked around in confusion. He desperately needed to talk out what had just happened. Just as he always talked everything important out with his cat, Fielding wandered through the dark halls, calling for his companion. He reached the hall where Baird's office was. The light was still on under the door. Maybe his cat had paid Bear to visit. It wouldn't be the first time. Fielding knocked this time, waiting patiently until Baird approached the door and opened it. But it wasn't Baird. It was an older man, portly, with no facial hair. He wore a tie and jacket, but no vest. He held an odd-looking pen in his hand. It seemed to be made of plastic, with the tip barely visible. He stared at Fielding in shock. Fielding politely asked where he might find Baird, but the man replied with a terrified, bone-chilling scream. Fielding whipped around, thinking something horrible was behind him. But there was nothing. He slowly looked down to see his nightshirt was covered in blood and his skin was vibrantly pale. He tenderly touched his cheek, shocked at how cold his own skin felt. He turned back to the man, realizing with a dawning alarm, the man was screaming at him. After years of fading health, Fielding B. Meek passed away from a lung hemorrhage in the castle's towers. He was buried on the grounds. Though revered by the scientific community for his paleontological accomplishments, Fielding was known as a chatty eccentric. He lived close to work below the castle's main entrance with his cat, at least until a fire in 1865 relocated him to an upstairs suite. After the move, his health continued to decline for years. He died in 1876. Scientists working late in the building speak of Fielding as one of the most active spirits to prowl the corridors. The paleontologist means no ill will. He's just looking for a lively discussion about archaeology and mollusks. But he's doomed to wander the castle halls alone and without a partner to converse with. Coming up, the Smithsonian's benefactor surveys his domain. Listeners, 
Looking for something a little spooky to dig into? Then check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this eerie new series. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why do black cats represent witchcraft? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem mystical or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the podcast series Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The castle scientists and researchers have come from all over the world to passionately toil within its walls, eager to present the next groundbreaking discovery. Many give their working lives to their field, a tradition that began with the Smithsonian Institution's founding donor and namesake, British scientist James Smithson. James lived a relatively melancholy life, he was the illegitimate son of Elizabeth Macy and Hugh Smithson, the first Duke of Northumberland. According to the institution's historian, Pamela Henson, James eventually was recognized by his family, making him eligible to inherit their fortune. But even then, he lacked the social eligibility to marry. And so James Smithson passed away in 1829 with no heirs. Without children to inherit his money, Smithson left his fortune first to his nephew, Henry James Hungerford. His will stated that if Hungerford died, his estate would then go to Washington, D.C. to create the Smithsonian Institution, which is exactly what happened. It was a place he hoped would increase the diffusion of knowledge throughout the world. The exact reasons behind his generosity, however, are largely unknown. The 1865 fire that drove Fielding Meek from his treasured quarters also destroyed most of Smithson's personal documents. However, historian Heather Ewing has sought to explain the mystery. According to Ewing, Smithson was a well-respected chemist and mineralogist in Britain. Inspired by the latest developments happening in the New American Republic, Smithson donated his fortune to the scientific pursuits of what he saw as a progressive, burgeoning society. It was a profound gesture. Smithson had never been to the U.S., and he certainly had never set foot in the magnificent building that would proudly wear his name. At least, not while he was alive. Inventor Alexander Graham Bell thought it tragic that Smithson was buried in Genoa, so far from the building Smithson's generosity created. So Bell and his wife traveled to Italy to exhume the body and bring it to Washington in 1904. When Smithson's corpse finally arrived at the Smithsonian, it sat in a meeting room for a year before the institution's board of regents converted a janitor's closet into a crypt. 
But in the 1970s, Smithson appeared to be unhappy with his accommodations. James Good sat behind his desk with his eyes closed, listening to the record's crooning vocals. Good's secretary poked her head in and gravelly announced that an employee wished to have a word. Good stifled a groan. He glanced at the clock above his office door. Only noon and a Monday. This would be a long week. He'd always wanted to be an architect and had been happy to accept a job at the castle, the architectural wonder that dared you to look away. Just being inside it each day made him feel closer to the magic of his field. But he hadn't realized all the talking that came with the job. He'd rather spend his time walking through the castle's halls, studying the impeccable design of the high ceilings and archways. There was something reliable about a well-made building. It didn't try to ask you for time off. Good lifted the record needle as the janitor shuffled in. He listened with faux interest as the janitor told him that a pale man in curious clothing had followed him on his night rounds over the weekend. He glanced around wide-eyed and then whispered the word, Ghost. Good sighed and looked again to the clock. It was only 12.05. The janitor wasn't the first to complain about specters. Almost all the night guards had come to him at some point, shaking and shell-shocked. All claimed they'd seen the castle's deceased founder, James Smithson, wandering about. It was ridiculous. Disrespectful, honestly. This was a place of history, not fantasy. He suggested that the man get some more rest and asked his secretary to show the janitor out. Later that evening, Good flipped through the past weekend's newspaper, waiting until the last of the office had left. He didn't want to risk being stopped for a chat on his way out. Good stifled a groan, silently begging whoever it was to go away. Good hauled himself up and went to answer it. But when he swung open the door, there was no one there. He frowned, sticking his head into the hallway. Hmm empty. The same loud knock echoed from down the hall. Good turned toward the noise. It must be the janitor. What was he doing making such a racket? Good was about to leave when something crashed in one of the rooms. Good swore. He had almost made it to the end of the day. He followed the sound to the great hall. It smelled musty, but its grandeur made up for the stink. The hall's high ceiling loomed above bookshelves and exhibition displays. Good's eyes flew to a glass enclosure to the left of the room's tall windows. The castle's rare book collection, their cracked, disintegrating spines, stared at him. At the far end of the hall, the portrait of their institution's founder, James Smithson, hung over a cold fireplace. Good sighed, bothered that their founder had been diminished to a ghost story. Smithson had been a mineralogist, so they didn't have much in common in terms of discipline, but he'd always admired the man. Smithson's fortune was the reason for the castle, an architectural dream that managed to feel both ancient and cutting edge. Seeing that all was well, Good turned to leave, but then he noticed something on one of the armrests of the chairs facing the fire. It was a hand. Someone was in the chair, 
good bristled. One of the night guards thought he'd take a nap on the job, huh? He hated confrontation, but working here was a privilege, and <sighs> this kind of thing was his job. Good called to the slacker that he was caught. No answer. Good stormed around the front of the chair, and the man's full face became clear. He wasn't sleeping. Quite the opposite. His eyes were wide open and unseeing, as if mulling over some kind of horrific dream. His cheeks were gaunt, with purple veins pulsing vibrantly on his pale skin. But it wasn't the man's poor health that shocked Good. It was who he reminded him of. Good tore his eyes away from the silent, quivering man to look up at Smithson's portrait, the same white receding hairline, the same high-necked blouse, the same pointed, delicate nose. The two men were identical. It was impossible. Good's mouth fell open, and a nervous tremor shook his body. When Good turned back to the chair, the unnerving man with Smithson's face was standing tall. The man burst into flames. His fiery arms flew out, reaching to wrap Good in an embrace. Good fell to the floor and thrust an arm over his head like a shield. His eyes squeezed shut, his heart thundering in his chest as he braced himself to be licked by flames. But nothing happened. He opened his eyes. The library was deserted but the smell of smoke lingered. It hadn't been in his head. The next day, Good stood shakily before Smithson's dusty casket. A dozen workers surrounded it. Good nodded to them. Let's get this over with. The workers held up welding torches and began to melt the casket's rim. Good hadn't slept the entire night. With a shudder, he remembered the ghostly figure bursting into flames, he had looked so angry. Was Smithson trying to tell Good something? Good shook his head. No, it was preposterous. The dead did not simply sit up and walk about. What happened the night before had just been a product of a weary mind. Hadn't he just heard about a ghost from a janitor? No doubt that had conjured the image. That was why he was going to look inside Smithson's casket to prove to everyone that Smithson was just where they'd left him. No more ghost stories. All of a sudden, the casket erupted in a fiery burst. Flames flew over its surface, covering the top of the casket in an inferno. The workers staggered back. Good's face went pale, and his mouth hung open in horror. For he was certain that amid the smoke and flames, he saw a mirage of Smithson's ghostly face smiling. After a series of ghostly sightings of Smithson, curator and historian James Good re-exhumed the founder's body in 1973. While trying to melt the casket's welding, its lining caught a light, causing it to burst into flames. It terrified the workers, who perhaps thought an angry Smithson would emerge and punished them for the disturbance. Once the fire was put out, the casket was opened to reveal Smithson's remains. His bones were then sent for tests, and his casket was renovated so that, perhaps, his spirit could rest peacefully. 
It worked. Sightings of Smithson haven't been reported since the 1980s. He now sits quietly in a tomb behind the plaque. James Smithson, founder of the Smithsonian Institution, who died in Genoa, Italy, June 26, 1829. His remains were brought to the United States in 1904 for reinterment in the care of the institution he founded. Smithson's spirit may be at peace, but he isn't the only ghost the castle has to contend with. Coming up, a night guard's daughter goes on an after-hours adventure in the castle. Now back to the story. In 1900, the Washington Post published an article entitled Shades of Scientists Who Walk Their Nightly, which dove into accounts of the peculiar things the castle staff working after hours claimed to have seen and heard. Things like guarded footsteps traverse the lonely corridors made by unseen feet and husky voices break the night stillness. It is frightening to hear a bump in a dark empty hallway or to glimpse a shadowy figure lurking behind a door, especially in an old dusty museum that looks like a haunted castle. But the castle's ghosts aren't the wretched spirits of violent murders. They're passionate institution members who refuse to relinquish control of their life's work. And for the most part, they don't seem to mean any harm. That being said, you best not endanger their precious artifacts. Lily liked how her carefree humming echoed through the massive exhibition room. She giggled, listening to it amplify and resonate like a pulsing wave. She never said no to a visit to the castle, where her dad worked as a night guard. With its massive towers and cases full of oddities, there was never a shortage of things to look at. She'd only ever visited during the day, but thanks to the babysitter canceling at the last minute, she'd finally get to see it after hours. Ten was too old for a babysitter anyway. Lily's excited humming grew in volume, but it was soon tempered by a sharp shush. Her father, David, glared down at her. His starched night guard's uniform made him look even grumpier than usual. He handed her the small pink backpack he'd been carrying, then stiffly informed her she'd need to stay in the guard's office. He'd brought her coloring materials and she could play games on his cell phone. Lily nodded stoically. It was endearing, really, how her dad thought she was going to waste a night at the castle inside a stupid, boring room. The door closed. Lily listened to her father's retreating footsteps until they faded out entirely. She waited a moment, then strode to the door. Lily crept down the echoing corridors, keeping close to the wall like a ninja. She was headed toward the South Tower, it was full of books that her dad would consider too adult for her. But what he didn't know couldn't hurt him. She passed door after door of boring labs and meeting rooms, until on her right, two grand double doors caught her eye. A marquee hung over them. Knowledge begins in wonder. Lily stared at the words, her curiosity growing. She hadn't seen that door before. She entered the room and found herself surrounded by rows of display cases. She coughed lightly. The dust in here made the air thick. Taxidermied, smiling animals looked out from behind glass. And a stiff, dead penguin 
sat beside a particularly vivid case of colorful masks. Lily paused in awe, noting that they were arranged by color. She turned toward a table of taxidermied lizards, all different sizes and shapes. A sign read, Don't Touch. Lily scoffed. She reached out to grab a bright green one. Its scaly body was stiff. She paused, thinking about the book she wanted to go read. This room was cool, but she had adult things to do. She slipped the lizard in her pocket as a souvenir. Lily tensed. She could have sworn she heard a whisper. The whispering grew. Lily whipped around nervously. The taxidermied animals stared back at her innocently. But something was different. Her eyes narrowed. It took her a moment to realize what it was. The case of masks. They were so neatly color-coded when she'd entered, but now they were all mixed up. Greens with yellows, reds all over the place. Its chaos was nauseating. Had they been like that the whole time? Her stomach flipped. If she got caught, her dad would think she messed with the masks. She hurried toward the door. She'd get back to the guard's room and claim she'd been there the whole time. But before she could leave, the door slammed shut. A throat cleared behind her. Lily slowly turned. The table was no longer unoccupied. A man with a thick black beard and an odd, ill-fitting three-piece suit crouched over it. As he looked down, Lily couldn't make out the features of his face. Her stomach dropped. Oh no, she was definitely in trouble now. The man didn't move. Maybe he hadn't noticed her. She turned to sneak out. But then he let out a pitiful wail, stopping her in her tracks. He pointed forlornly at the table of lizards. Lily was frozen as the man's wail became a sob. She wanted to say something, anything, to comfort this strange man. So she took a step closer. And then he looked up. The skin on the man's face was paper thin. His eyes were sunken backwards in his skull, with cobwebs stretched across the sockets. His eyeless gaze seemed to settle on Lily, traveling down to her pocket. The man began to shriek. His head shook violently. He stormed over to her, his hand outstretched. Lily backed away, gasping as his cold grip latched onto her wrist and yanked the lizard from her pocket. She yelped as he released her, then lurched toward the door. Her head was spinning now. She yanked the handle frantically. Locked. Locked. Yes, no matter how much she wiggled it, it was still locked. Lily screamed. Her hands ached with her continued effort to turn the handle. Her fists pounded the door. Her back tingled as she felt the wretched man behind her. Lily careened forward onto the hard, tiled floor. Suddenly, her father's towering figure appeared over her, and his booming voice demanded to know what she was doing. Lily pointed a shaking finger back at the table. Instead, sitting at the table's edge was a black, taxidermied bird. Its cold, dead eyes stared unseeing at Lily and her father. Its stiff wings were yellow-tipped and extended out over the table. 
like it was protecting its brood from an intruder. Members of the Smithsonian staff have provided multiple accounts of masks moving in their cases, haunted bronze animal sculptures, screeching birds, and disembodied voices. But many also speak of the castle's most frequent visitor, Spencer Fullerton Baird. Baird died in 1887. He was the first museum curator and specialized in the study of North American birds, mammals, and reptiles, among other disciplines. His life work was enriching the Smithsonian's collections and training young naturalists to carry out his research. Perhaps he didn't completely trust in the abilities of the future generation, however. According to the 1900 Washington Post article, after his death, he continued to supervise the affairs of the museum he devoted his life to. The variation found in the numerous ghostly tales of the castle and all other buildings of the Smithsonian complex have gone through their fair share of scrutiny. They can be easily explained by eerie shadows and the many odd sounds that old structures make. A fair amount of these unsettling stories have been debunked entirely. The castle is a place of science, after all. For instance, sightings of a ghostly woman turned out to be Jessie Beach, a museum aide who'd been sleeping at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. She was found out when a guard walked in on her taking a bath in the geology lab. This prompted Smithsonian Secretary Alexander Wetmore to forbid staff from staying at the museum past midnight. Another popular tale was the sighting of Watson Perigo, the head taxidermist from 1962 to 1965. He liked to attach old snake skins to the radiator so they'd dance about and scare visitors. Whether or not the castle is actually haunted is up for debate. But whatever you believe, there can be no ignoring its energy. It has drawn the world's most brilliant minds since its establishment, and its hallowed halls have seen generations of intense dedication. Commitment so strong that the departed feel it's their duty to keep watch over their life's work. Some believe that the whispering voices and the wandering footsteps that walk through the castle's dark corridors are merely guardians of the valuables within. So, even if you do not believe in the haunting of the castle and other buildings of the Smithsonian complex, you should believe in the power that its halls hold and treat it with respect. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Kerry Murphy. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Alex Garland. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Adriana Gomez and Mickey Taylor. I'm Greg Polson.
bad omens, good fortune, pure luck. Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.